In this episode, for the second time, special guest Lee Brasington, Buddhist meditation teacher and author of Right Concentration, A Practical Guide to the Jhanas, joins the ongoing conversation featuring Shin Zen Young, a meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center for Consciousness Studies and research professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, Shinzen and Lee engage in a detailed discussion about the variety of classifications of jhana in Buddhist scriptures and the competing interpretations of them that exist today. They examine the contents and political context of 5th century text the Vasudhimaga and its author Buddhaghosha, and consider possible conflicts between its jhana system and those of the Sutta and Abhidhamma literature. Chelsea reveals fascinating research on the neuroscience of pleasure and its relationship to meditational bliss. Jay shares research on cognitive bias and religious belief, and the group asked the question if jhana and kriya phenomena are actually forms of epileptic seizure. So without further ado, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, and returning special guest, Lee Brasington. Great to join you guys again. Last time was so much fun. I'm really looking forward to this one as well. Yeah, it was so fabulous. Uh, the last episode. This is actually the eighth episode of this very popular, it's turned out to be, conversation series between Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. And this episode sees the return of Lee Brasington. So on the last episode of this series, number 110 of the Guru Viking podcast, Lee overviewed his work as co-author and meditation subject in the 2013 paper, Case Study of Ecstatic Meditation, FMRI and EEG Evidence of Self-Stimulating a Reward System. And from there, we went on to have such a wonderful conversation about so many topics. We covered death, bliss, immortality, this was really the whole smorgasbord, I think. And something that came up towards the end of that episode was a defini definitional issue of hard and soft jhana, pointing to what seems to be variation among teachers in the uh, instruction of these states, but also quite some debate about what qualifies as a jhana. So perhaps to start, uh, Lee, I'm wondering if you could illuminate these terms for us, hard and soft jhana. And then perhaps by way of follow-up, another question that arose in the last episode was, why are there jhanas in the first place? Is it possible to speculate if there are any evolutionary advantages to these states? So hard and soft jhanas, uh, Vasudhimaga and Sutta jhanas, monastic and lay jhanas, jhana heavy and jhana light. <laughs> There's lots of ways of talking about this. So the jhanas, the, the word jhana means meditation. That's it, simple. But they're concentration states and there is a huge spectrum. At one end, there is at least one teacher who thinks you can be walking around and be in the jhanas. And at the other end, when you're in a jhana, you're oblivious to everything in the universe except what you're focused on, animitta. And you can find everything along the way in between. So when, when we use the term hard and soft or uh, Vasudhimaga and sutta, 
really what we're trying to distinguish is the jhanas as described in the suttas and the jhanas as described in the later literature. Now, those who are fans of the later literature, of course, say, well, it's the same thing. But if you read the Vasudhimaga carefully and you read the suttas carefully, uh, there's, there's definite differences there. So maybe the real question is, what were the jhanas that the Buddha was practicing? Well, unfortunately, uh, because we're here now, we obviously weren't there then, or if we were, we weren't paying attention or we wouldn't be here now. So we don't know exactly what the Buddha was practicing. I suspect that what I teach is not the same depth of concentration as the Buddha and his monks were experiencing. I mean, after all, they were on lifetime retreat. They were on retreat every day. They were meditating six, eight, or more hours a day. Uh, most lay people, yeah, they're lucky to get in an hour. Maybe they're good, they get in two hours a day and they have all the other stuff going on in their lives that, yeah, the monastics didn't have. So the depth of concentration that's available, it just isn't quite as deep. One thing we can see is the evolution of the depth of concentration according to the current official definition of jhanas. So we have what's in the suttas. In there, it mentions that one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness, etc. So clearly there's bodily awareness available uh, when you're practicing what's described in the suttas. <laughs> That's a contentious point as well, because the word kaya can mean collection or physical body, just like the English word body body of water or physical body. So there, yeah, even though it uses the word body, people argue over it. Whereas when you get to the Abhidhamma, there is one pointedness added to the first jhana and the understanding of body becomes body of mind or being or something like that. They also introduced jhana 1.5 between first and second jhana because they've changed the words vitaka and vichara from meaning thinking and examining, which is what they mean throughout the suttas, to initial and sustained attention. And since they couldn't have thinking, examining, and one-pointedness at the same time, they just changed the meaning of the words. Um, by the time you get to the Vasudhimaga, there is complete absorption. For the Vasudhimaga jhanas, you need a nimitta. Nimitta means sign, but frequently it's a circle of light. And my understand that neurologically what's going on is that it, when you get concentrated enough, there are random firings throughout your, your brain, including in your visual cortex. And these random firings start showing up initially as a diffuse white light. And as the random firings become more predominant, the firings are in proportion to the density of the neurons, which in your visual cortex, there's a circle of densely packed neurons right in the center. And that's what you see as a circle of light. If you're concentrated enough, you will absorb into that 
to the point where there is no body sensations, no sounds, no, no passage of time. There is the nimitta and nothing else. Now, the Sudhimagasis, there are other things other than the visual nimitta. They can be a touch nimitta. But anyhow, you are so absorbed into this sign that you're unaware of anything else in the universe. So we see this you know, spectrum of awareness of the body and being able to drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse your body uh, all the way up to where, yeah, your body's completely gone. For me, what's important is what can you do? I mean, okay, so let's say the Vasudhimaga jhanas are the real jhanas and everything else is a pale imitation. Well, to get to the Vasudhimaga jhanas, you need to go on yeah, three, four, six month long retreat and practice very diligently. And for most lay people, uh, that's not compatible with lay life. So even if that is the best jhanas, it's not useful because you can't do it. So for me, what can I teach people that will enhance their insight practice? In other words, what sort of concentration techniques can I teach them? And so what I wind up teaching them is, well, what seems to naturally occur. People stumble into these states all the time at a level that more or less corresponds to what I'm teaching. And so that takes us to the second question. Why do we stumble into these states? It's, it's really common. Uh, I would say 25% of meditators who are serious meditators, you know, willing to go on multiple residential retreats, willing to go on, say, a month-long retreat, I'd say 25% of those people are stumbling into one or sometimes even more of these jhanas. So do they provide an evolutionary advantage? I doubt it. You can snap your fingers, right? Does being able to snap your fingers provide you with an evolutionary advantage, or is that just a secondary side effect of the way our hands are built? Right? I think the jhanas are a secondary side effect of other things in our minds, the, the way our minds are built. I mean, the fact that I can teach people to do this, and I had the same success rate on my very first retreat as my teacher Ayakema was having on her retreats, and is the same as the success rate I have today when I teach a retreat. It's all about how our human minds are constructed. I just, I just know to tell you, hey, lift up the carpet. There's a trap door underneath, you know, but the trap door is already in your mind. So then the question becomes, you know, not why are our hands built so that we can snap our fingers, but what do we have that does provide an evolutionary advantage such that we fall into these states? And I think it's different for each of the jhanic states. The first jhana, so the primary constituents are piti and sukha. Piti we could translate, well, usually it's rapture, euphoria, ecstasy, delight. I wanna translate it as glee. So a physical release of energy, a pleasant uprushing release of energy. And then sukha, which is joy or happiness. 
a number of students, not, not the majority, but a significant minority, have mentioned that when they experienced the first jhana for the first time, it had a sexual feeling to it. Uh, Ayakema responded by saying, yeah, well, it's, it's a lot of physical pleasure and sex is our most common experience of physical pleasure. But there's an even subset of those who talk about it having a sexual connotation to it, who speak of it as being downright orgasmic. Uh, one of my students referred to the first jhana as the orgasmatron. Now, the, the most interesting thing is that women report it being orgasmic about 10 times as often as men reporting it being orgasmic, which makes me think that the first jhana perhaps is more like female orgasm than male orgasm. But I think we're tapping into our ability to we're tapping into something that gave us the uh, drive to reproduce, the pleasure associated with reproducing to generate the first jhana. And I suspect now I've probably talked long enough and there might be some other questions that would come along at this point or comments. So Chelsea, did you want to say something at this point? I think, you know, the intersection of mysticism, uh, contemplative practice and pleasure is a deep passion of mine. So I have a lot of thoughts on the sort of likely neurological mechanisms of what is probably occurring in those first jhanas. But before I delve into that, I would love to hear um, your and Shinzen's thoughts on what you too think is going on or why some people would be more likely to experience that than others. I know you've said that it varies among students. Um, so I think that would be really interesting to explore. And then um, let me know when you want me to take over on the neurological uh, theories that I think are probably occurring there. Now, uh, first thing I would say is once we bring up sex, uh, this is something that people are going to want to hear about and we're going to want to talk about, <clears throat> uh, which is fine. But before we do that, um, how can I put this? What Lee just said, how he analyzed and broke down um, <clears throat> the contrast in approaches, that's very, very important stuff. I don't know if people listening, how profoundly that impacted you intellectually, but uh, I'm listening very carefully. I'm a definition guy. And Lee, you've put a lot of thought into this. Um, and it's, very, um, it's a very clear formulation. It raises, it, it, I think it's a good place to start. And it raises many, many questions uh, in my mind in the sense of 
oh, then we should ask this, or then we should ask this, or then we ask, should ask this, the right, those good questions. So I'm ready to have a one hour conversation with Lee to the exclusion of everyone else in the universe, just on the about 30 seconds worth of what he said, because there was a lot in there uh, in terms of implication and the very interesting analysis. So before we move into sex, uh, which makes me think we'll probably talk about nothing else after we make that transition, but who knows? Um, I, my first question, you set up a contrast and you gave maybe as many as a half dozen, maybe more uh, synonyms for the two sides of that contrast. So I'm assuming that all of the words that you used have at one time or another been used in discussion around this issue. Is that correct? Is there that much variability in the sort of the handles that people are putting on the distinction? And I'm also yeah. curious who's using which vocabulary to talk about what to what end? Yeah, so there is that amount of variability. Uh, once I begin to understand that, oh yeah, the suttas and the, the Sudhimaga are talking about different states, I begin calling them the lay and the monastic jhanas. So and I use that, that was term your terminology. Right. Like this is uh, householder facing, this is monastic facing right. practice. But then I used that term with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and he was like, no, 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 because he's a monastic, and he practices what I was calling the lay jhanas. He says it's sutta versus the Sudhimaga. And I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Now, can I interrupt you again? There's going to be a sequence of interruptions, because it's I'm going to apologize up front, because, you know, I'm ferreting out some information. I'm assuming... He's basing that on his version or his background, his heritage of the Thai forest monastery tradition. So would that contrast, there's the suttas versus what Buddha, uh, Buddha Gosa says, and there's what the Buddha said, um, is that characteristic of all the Thai uh, forest monastics, they tend to have that view, or is that more his personal view? I suspect it's more his lineage's view. I know that, uh, so Buddha Dasa, his understanding of the jhanas more closely matched what's in the Vasudhimaga, although he, he was less a fan of the Vasudhimaga than I am. And, no, I don't think the Vasudhimaga knows what it's talking about in many instances. So I don't think you can say there is a single Thai forest understanding of the jhanas. From what I understand of Ajahn Chah's lineage, he was thinking of the jhanas as they're described in the Vasudhimaga. 
And he practiced in that way. Okay, said, so we're already getting a lot of richness. Let me just recap for people that don't have a degree in Buddhology. <laughs> um, what we're saying is that there's a prominent uh, teacher uh, named Tanisaro. He's a monastic. Um, in one, because I think there must be various Thai forests. There must be, because you're saying there's four. Oh, uh, there's, I, there's a lot. There's a, a lot. lot. So Ajahn Cha, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher, um, would definitely be, he was Laotian, but same deal. I mean, right? It's the uh, forest tradition. Yet he was more Visuddhimagga based. Uh, Visuddhimagga is the path of purification. It was written probably in the sixth century uh, AD. Do you agree with that date? Uh, I, I think that's what the. Century. Huh? Fifth, fifth century. Fifth century, something like that in Sri Lanka. So this is a thousand years after the Buddha. Um, um, and it was written by a man named uh, Buddha Gosa. So you're telling me that some Thai lineage monks are sort of all about the, the Visuddhimagga, whereas others might say, no, we have to be more sutta-based, uh, meaning going back to what we believe to be the words of the Buddha. Did I get that part of it correct? More or less. So the, the spectrum is highly populated all along there. I think, I think anyone who's following the Visuddhimagga would disagree that there's any difference between the suttas and the Visuddhimagga. They would say it's exactly the same. But there are those of us, including uh, Buddha Dasa, who was another brilliant Thai forest tradition teacher, who felt that the Vasudhimaga was not helpful at all, yet his understanding of the jhanas more closely matched what's in the Vasudhimaga. But I wouldn't say he was, I don't know what he was teaching in terms of jhanas or if he taught jhanas, but his understanding was more in the Vasudhimaga direction. It's a, it's Whereas a, Tan Jeff's teacher was more in what I call the sutta direction. So there is, a general contrast in the Southeast Asian practice world and the world influenced by Southeast Asia, it sounds to me like people that are sort of, let's try to have the original words of the Buddha and base things on that versus there's this very authoritative thing from Sri Lanka. Um, that has been used for centuries and centuries and centuries, a lot of places. So let's base on that. So that sort of contrast of what they believe to be the actual words of the Buddha versus what is obviously something much later. That sounds to me like that's, that's one dimension of the contrast. But then there's uh, another dimension, which is, okay, how do we think about, quote, jhana? Do we think about this list one through four, and then another list one through four, the formless, and then maybe 
number nine, which appears to be a very rare physiological suspended animation, Dealey. Um, this list of four, of, of four or eight or nine, um, are these things that ordinary people can do? Uh, or, you know, let's leave off number nine, because I don't think that's a thing that, or <laughs> that's very unusual. The ability to suspend completely physiology at will and then bring it back in a week. Come on. I mean, really, we're going to put that. I'm sure people can do it, but that's, that's pretty extreme. Um, so let's just say there are four or there are eight. The contrast would be, does this list of four or this list of eight, are, are these in any way accessible um, without becoming a professional full-time practitioner, basically? If we just call monastics professionals, <laughs> they're supposed to, of course, cuculus non facet monacum, you know, a cowl does not make you into a monk. <laughs> it's what's in the robe that counts, uh, not the robe itself. So in any event, it looks like a second dimension of contrast is, is this list that we've got from these old books, either from the suttas, which are believed to be his original words, but that's to me very controversial, or what we know for sure is much later. And how enlightened was Buddha Gosa anyway to talk about all this stuff. Had he experienced that? Was he an arhat? Or was he a scholastic? Because boy, that makes a difference. If he was just trying to figure it out as an intellectual and he had a, a little bit of concentration and a monastic lifestyle, which is what most monks have, you know, we've been there. Yeah, you get a little bit of concentration because you chant and you do these ceremonies and you have to behave. So yeah, you get some, was he a typical monk that had a bit of concentration in daily life because he was a monk and then was just trying to look at all these scriptures and weave it all together? Or was he a stream enterer, once returner? <laughs> uh, had he attained all those jhanas? including the ninth, if he's mostly an intellectual trying to work things out, that's one thing. If he's an accomplished adept trying to describe his own experience, that's something very different. Do you have an opinion about that? Yeah, of course I have an opinion. <laughs> so Better you than me. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is uh, there's a paper on my website. Uh, I sent the link out, and so Steve can post it, you know, down there. That I identify 38 different states that go by the name jhana. There's sutta jhanas, abhidhamma jhanas, vasudhimaga jhanas, pure land jhanas, vipassana jhanas. The four stages of awakening are called jhanas, and the so-called ninth jhana. All right, so plenty of plenty of. Uh, uh, ideas about what's a jhana. As for Buddhaghosa, my understanding is that he was brought in to be the editor. There were two monasteries, uh, 
Abayagiri and the great monastery who were vying for favor with the king. And it went up and down and they went back and forth. And at one point, Abayagiri was up and the great monastery was down. And the great monastery came up with this idea of taking all of this Singhalese language commentaries and translating them into Pali because they thought that would boost them up. And so they hired a monk from India to come to the great monastery and be the editor for this project of translating the existing commentaries into Pali. And the editor's name was Buddhaghosa. So I think he was an editor, he was a monk. How accomplished he was, I have no idea whether he could do this. Um, I, you can probably find somebody to support any position you want to take. And so I, I, all I can say is he appears to be an editor. So that would tend to make me think he was more scholastic than actual practitioner, a deep practitioner. But, but remember, Mahasi Sayadaw was both an editor and we know he was a practitioner. So right. there's a, in the last century. Did you ever meet him, Mahasi? No. I, I was actually him. in the same room with Mahasi while he was still alive. Nice. Uh, so I intersected slightly with him. Anyway, he was both. <laughs> so we have an actual example right. that, that, that he could have been an adept. Yeah, and so we don't know about Buddhaghosa. All we know is he was an editor and he put together the existing commentaries which had been created in a different culture centuries after the Buddha's death. And that's, that's how we wound up with the Vasudhimaga and all the other commentaries that exist today, except for the later commentaries on that commentary and the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries, which we also Right. Have. So why did the Vasudhimaga get such uh, prominence? Is it because the Mahavihara won the war? Uh, or is it some other cultural force? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, people like the Vasudhimaga because it's so well organized. And my comment was, yeah, too bad is wrong. You know, well-organized misinformation is less useful than misorganized accurate information. But that's my opinion. Well, so, but, but the, there's also what's in the Abhidhamma. There, those descriptions of the jhanas. So how does that relate to the suttas, the putative sutta description of the jhanas? Yeah, none of, them, none of them actually fit very accurately with each other. Uh, you, the can reason, see, you can see the concentration ahead. increasing as time goes by. I mean, think about it. More, you a bunch of guys, they're out in the woods. They got nothing to do but meditate. There's no TV. There's no women. So whoever can meditate the strongest, that's the real thing. And it just keeps building like that over the centuries until the Visuddhimagga actually says of those who come to meditation, only one in a hundred or one in a thousand can get the preliminary nimitta. Of those who get the preliminary nimitta, one in a hundred or one in a thousand can get the real nimitta. And of those no, who most, get students, nimitta, most students can get the preliminary nimitta already. They just don't know. They just call it the darkness, brightness in yeah, front yeah, of yeah. behind their closed eyes. That's the right. beginning of the nimitta. Right. It's already but there. 
But of those who can get the real nimitta, only one in a hundred or one in a thousand can get to first jhana. So being a mathematician, I multiplied a hundred times a hundred times a hundred, taking the most optimistic thing. And so the Vasudhimaga is literally saying only one in a million people who come to meditation can get to the first jhana. Whereas in the suttas, everybody's doing jhanas. So clearly it's different stuff. And it explains a lot of why the jhanas have fallen out of favor. Theravadan Buddhism looks more to the Vasudhimaga than to the suttas for its, well, its whole view. And so these jhanas that nobody can do are pretty useless. So they came up with the so-called dry insight path so that people could actually practice and make some progress without using the jhanas. It's just that, well, humans have this ability to get concentrated into very deep states. Why not tap into that? And that's, I think, what the Buddha, that was the Buddha's genius, was to tap into that and use it as a warm-up exercise for his insight practice. And the insight practice is what is transformative. You say that it, as time goes on, the term jhana tends to more and more uh, weight to uh, uh, very high uh, focus abilities. Uh, um, so I, I will say one of the reasons that I doubt some of the claims that are made by some of the parties is my initial exp uh, study of all of the above, all the things you're mentioning, was through East Asian Buddhism. So I read the Chinese canon. And the Chinese canon actually has a version of the Visuddhimagga in it. It's not the Visuddhimagga, though. It's, but it's, it's a similar text. Um, and um, but the Chinese canon also has the, the sutras, as they're called in Mahayana, and the Abhidharma, which is the earlier commentaries, but earlier than Buddha Gosa or modern teachers. So when you read it in Chinese, um, it's certainly similar to Pali, but it's not the same. And the interpretations are not the same, but the words are the same. So uh, I think it's, I'm trying to simplify the, the picture in the Buddhist world. Maybe it's two dimensions. One is to what extent we think that we need to go back to the original words of the Buddha, which may not be his original words, versus the authority of uh, this scripture, that's, uh, I'm sorry, of this uh, work, the Visuddhimagga, which you're saying your theory, one of the, is that it became popular because it was more systematic than even the Abhidharma and the, or were there political? Because it's very interesting to me that this whole thing had its origin in a controversy for uh, political patronage. That's 
even among monks, that can get very ugly. Um, I'm just wondering if there are further down the line political reasons why the Visuddhimagga be, became so authoritative. It could be political reasons. Uh, you know, I, I haven't studied the history of how it became so authoritative. But looking today, I mean, okay, all of you that are now watching this, uh, how many of you have read a bunch of suttas? How many of you read Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Shogun Trumpa and modern 20th and 21st century writers? We tend to read stuff that's more modern. Um, and so just the fact that it was later, I'm sure contributed to the fact that it was more acceptable. There probably was political stuff going on. I mean, after all, when I saw Ayakema three weeks before she died, her parting advice to me was don't get involved in Dharma politics. Because yes. yeah, <laughs> there's politics everywhere. And it's easier to work with the Visuddhimagga than it is the suttas, which are just this hodgepodge collection of stuff that's clearly written after the Buddha's death and stuff that might have come from the Buddha, but we don't know. So all of this stuff contributes. And my orientation is try and figure out what might be early material, figure out what I think is early material is trying to say and try and practice that and see what happens. So yeah, my orientation is quite different from the usual Theravadan orientation, and I think from the general orientation towards Dharma practice in general. And my orientation is a little different from yours, because the fact that the Buddha said it versus the fact that some other practitioner said it that doesn't actually weigh very big with me. I tend to look upon the Buddha as another practitioner who has become through cultural forces, has come to be seen as something other than another practitioner like you and me. One of the things you get from the Zen tradition, which I think is very healthy, is the notion in Rinzai Zen particularly in modern Japan to this day still, there aren't many Rinzai Zen Roshis. I don't know how many there are, but there aren't many and there certainly aren't many senior Rinzai Zen Roshis. But I would say that liberation-wise, forget about other stuff, just in terms of freedom from body-mind. Every Roshi I met was, in my mind, sort of close to what the Buddha would have been. The Buddha would have been a person like this. No more. No more. One of us. Oh yeah, extraordinary in creativity, extraordinary in guts, extraordinary in clarity, but he was an aristocrat. He was educated. He was, you know, so he became an extraordinary teacher. 
And he was proto-scientific in his approach. Oh my God, oh my God. These are, we can lay at his feet a dozen radical innovations. What a creative ma master. But then again, he was almost groomed for the role. He was at the top of his world in terms of his social connections, his education, and I guess his intelligence, native. So sure, extraordinary as a human being, but not fundamentally different from a modern, highly senior, attained master in, say, the Rinzai Zen tradition. So it doesn't really make that much difference to me. It's uh, in a sense, of course, we want to find out what the guy said and the influence is so major. But it's not like, for in my mind, that's more important than what a dozen modern but really attained teachers are saying. I don't rank the Buddha, I mean, culturally, historically, yes, and creatively, no one changed history. He's the only enlightened person that changed history so far. So, oh, sure, I mean, he gets the Nobel Peace Prize for science and, and for science and peace, he gets the Nobel Prize for sure. So that's extraordinary. But this idea that somehow if we could only find out what this guy said, we'd have the answer, that doesn't work for me anymore. Just saying. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And it's like, there's so many people saying so many different things. It's like, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna figure out who's saying, the stuff that's going to be the most useful. And so, yeah, I'm curious, what do we think the Buddha had to say? And then I'm looking to later people. I'm a huge fan of Nagarjuna, right? I, I, so I'm teaching these, quote, Theravadan retreats, and yet I bring in Nagarjuna every retreat because I think he, he was teaching in congruence with what the Buddha was teaching. Uh, I think that Shanti Deva's dedication of merit is perhaps the most the most brilliant elucidation of compassion that has ever been done. I look to some of the uh, Mahasiddhis, Saraha. I look to some of uh, the the more modern Tibetan teachers. I mean, yeah, there's lots of ancient ones that I really appreciate. Uh, Patro Rinpoche. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people around that. Yeah, I think are doing a really brilliant job. But I I sort of want have some sort of measure of you know, what's going on. And I, I find what I find in the early suttas to be very helpful. So that's why I'm oriented in that direction. But yeah, I'm really happy if I can meet an authentic, highly developed master living in the 21st century. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, unfortunately, I don't run into many. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious problem we have today. I think if we had a lot more enlightened people, we'd be in a lot better shape. So uh, all you guys out there listening, get on the stick. 
So essentially, a lot of what you guys are d discussing in a really very fascinating way is the question of what is sort of the real dharma, or what is the real practice that these you know that this this real practice but you could do the same discussion for almost anything in buddhism right and what you know i see in just common spiritual circles as you're talking about lee is this sort of dharma politics where everyone wants to think that they have the real thing and then people seem to take great joy in you know telling everyone else that their thing isn't the real thing and this teaching isn't that and this isn't that and i'm gonna you know go on instagram and proclaim that you know I just find it all very kind of funny, um, but it seems to have been occurring even back in, you know, the times of these scriptures being written among monks and among practitioners who are really relatively serious practitioners who seem to have attained a degree of, you know, separation from the personality. But then when the personality comes back, the first thing it seems to do is say, well, look at all of this great things that I've done and it makes me better than you and you and you. And so I guess I'm just wondering from the perspective of you two about basically the spiritual ego versus the sort of regular ego and like how one might grow and the other one might get smaller. And among these debates about the real Dharma, what I'm thinking about on a practical level is how that plays out in terms of people's practices and how, you know, there's this cartoon I saw where someone's like, there's a cliff and the character runs along the cliff and he's like freeing myself from the ego. And then it jumps off and splats down on the next platform, which is the spiritual ego, right? So <laughs> when we're talking about like, what is the true dharma? I guess that's my question is like, uh, this is kind of vague and I'm rambling, but how do you two see integration happening in a healthy way where people don't fall into that trap or what goes wrong when they do start to, you know, take great joy in uh, putting other people down for not being good enough Dharma practitioners. It's it's a really common problem. Uh, if you if you were to get all of the Western uh, Jhana teachers in the room, you know, and it would it wouldn't need to be a large room, but each one of them would be very happy to explain to you that their understanding of the Jhanas is correct, and anyone who's teaching Jhanas that don't have enough concentration that they have, it's not real jhanas. And anyone who has more concentration than they have, they're just indulging. It's, it's no different than anything else. My way is always the right way. Hopefully, as people get deeper into the path, then their personality ego and their spiritual egos both diminish. But it's a serious problem because your students are always putting you on a pedestal. Um, they always think you know more than you actually know. And you have to be very careful not to believe what your students tell you about yourself if it's positive. If the student tells you something about yourself and it's negative, that's, that's the real jewels. But yeah, everybody's saying, oh, you did such a great job. It's like, you know, okay, maybe I did a great job. But don't let it go to your head. This is a real danger amongst all spiritual teachers. Um, humility is not one of the uh, paramis or something, but if you're going to be a teacher, it needs to be a really strong parami for you. Jay, did you have something to say? Because we're talking um, about how people get stuck in opinions and you're a cognitive neuroscientist. Yeah, there's lots to say on that, uh, lots of other questions that have come up as well. 
Um, you know, we often talk about cognitive biases in psychology. These are evolutionarily built-in mechanisms to help us carry out action in the world, uh, especially in a world like today that's full of fear and terror. There's a pandemic. There's lots to be worried about. But um, our system still has to motivate, get out of bed, and, and do something. And so we have these mechanisms built in to help us repress a lot of that information, push it unconscious, um, such that we can focus on certain goals to get certain actions done. And I think some of those same mechanisms, those cognitive biasing mechanisms, what Freud called defense mechanisms, um, those can come to play in spiritual practice. And uh, we can have, you know, we're talking about these jhana states. These are often experienced as very ecstatic altered states that feel good. They're in the good dimension of experience. And that can cause, I wonder, there's not a lot of science on this yet, but this is speculation, that some of that can kick up some of these defense mechanisms and these biasing mechanisms and these cognitive mechanisms such that we get attached to the good dimension of experience. And we start talking about that. We start identifying with that. And uh, it sort of just kicks up those base mechanisms that are in there that have been helping us all along to survive and act. And now it's just shifting towards this positive emotion of experience. Um, and I think that's actually quite a hard problem because a lot of these biasing mechanisms, these defense mechanisms are by their nature unconscious or pre-conscious, meaning that we don't really have access to what they're doing, how they're working. We can't consciously experience that stuff. It's going on underneath the surface. And so my guess is, and Lee was talking about this on an email chain, a great email chain we had before this conversation, that you know there are certain practices like loving kindness, for example, that may be working on some of this under the surface without us needing to have total conscious access to it. And so I think some of the contemplative practices have actually figured out what to do in these cases to work on some of this stuff that's going on underneath uh, the surface. You know, in my opinion, it might be going on all the way down to the level of the muscles. <laughs> you know, there's, there may be memories down there that we have no access to, uh, but we need to work on those types of things. The um, reason I uh, mm -hmm. pass the ball to you as a scientist is my suggestion for dealing with this issue of how um, people tend to get attached to opinions. Um, how can we deal with this? Well, of, you know, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is did did or did not the Buddha himself apparently say, what I teach you is like a raft. It's meant to achieve a certain goal and you need to let go of it once it's <laughs> um, uh, done its job, number one. And number two, the Buddhist tradition is, to my knowledge, the only tradition that explicitly says attachment to ideas is the same as attachment to sex or possessions. It's listed. The, one of the problems that the Abrahamic religion 
meditators ran into people working in the so-called Western traditions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, um, is they, it wasn't put on their list to let, that you're gonna have to let go of your ideas, or at least you're gonna have to have a new relationship to ideas, all ideas, even the ideas that brought you to your freedom. Uh, that was never, to my knowledge, talked about much or at all in the Western meditation traditions. But Buddhists know you're not that attachment to ideas. It's on the list. It's like other attachments. So, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, well, remind people that <laughs> this is antithetical to the Buddhist tradition. Uh, but I don't think that's going to help because people have known that for a long, long time. And the problems still happen. Um, in a sense, this is probably going to not sit well with some people, but in a sense, we do have to blame the Buddha or at least his immediate successors in the first couple centuries. Because the fact is, when you read the Pali literature, when you read the suttas, essentially what you see is a portrayal of an individual that is completely different from any of his peers. If they engage him in a debate, they lose over and over and over again. This guy's got the answer. That's what sort of comes across in the, from the Pali scriptures. Now, why it's that way, that's, scholars can talk about that. But if, once you start with the Buddhist tradition, if you go to the suttas, broadly, um, you've got the Buddhist point of view, arguing with all the other points of view that were prevalent in that society at that time, and always winning, making it look like there is one right way to do this that was discovered by this guy. That's the general impression you get. So if you've got that general impression, of course, whether you know it or not, you're always thinking, what's the right fucking way to practice. But humanity probably doesn't know the right way to practice. Pardon my French. That's why I'm so interested in finding out what's the early material. So there's a collection called the Sutta Nipata, the little Sutta collection. And book four in that collection is 16 suttas. And most scholars say this is very early material, early in the sense that it was probably from the time of the Buddha. And early, it was from the Buddha's early ministry, because it doesn't show the Buddha with monasteries and followers and so, so forth. And the two overriding themes are don't pursue sensual pleasures and don't get lost in your views and opinions. 
that's the overriding theme of this, this early material. And if you read carefully, this comes up over and over and over again in the material that the scholars think is early material. Uh, I'll read you something from the Kachyana Gota Sutta, which in my opinion is the most profound of all the suttas. Oh, I got to quote you on that. Now yeah, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it in five languages. Uh, on actually, your say-so. <laughs> I, I have it in uh, multiple translations on my website. I will Great. stick the, the uh, link in the, in the a, chat and it'll show up, you know, down there. Uh, for people's so, reference, uh, could you give them the spelling of the Pali word? Uh, it's Suttanipata 12.15 and it's the Kachyanagota. K-A-C-C-A-N-A-G-O-T-T-A. -T -T That's one way it spells. Kachanagota. That's correct. <laughs> Kachanagota. It means right. he's from the Gota or clan of Katyayana. Yeah. Right. This world, for the most part, Katyana is bound by approach, grasping, and inclination. And one who does not follow that approach and grasping and that determination of mind, that inclination and disposition, who does not cling or adhere to a view, this is my atta, my soul, myself. So this world in general grasp after systems and imprisoned by dogmas. One with right view does not go along with that system grasping, that mental obstinacy and dogmatic bias, does not grasp and does not affirm. This is my atta. So the Buddha is saying this over and over again. There's lots of suttas where this shows up, including you mentioned uh, the raft that shows up in uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 22. Uh, again, it shows not with a raft, but uh, in Majjhima 38, if you're grasping at this teaching I'm giving you, is this a wise thing like, you know, like a raft to take you to the other side? No, venerable sir. If you realize this is just skillful means, is this useful for getting you to the other side? Yes, venerable sir. I mean, it's over and over again. So yeah, if you read all the suttas and you believe everything you read, well, you, you wind up with walking, talking newborns as well as a lot of debates. I think the debate showed up as Buddhism after the Buddha's death fought for viability. It had to get the support of well, the kings, the people that had the money that could support it. And it had to defeat the other people, the Jains and the Ajivakas and all the others. So it postulated, it invented, it composed these dialogues between the Buddha and the other spiritual traditions and the other guys always lost. And I'm not thinking that's really the authentic Buddhism. I'm looking for the real deep stuff. And so I, I'm not a fan of all 10,000 suttas. It's a limited subset. And one of the overriding themes of the limited subset is not getting caught in views and opinions. I mean, after all, if you want to get someplace else, you got to leave where you are now. If you want to get somewhere on the spiritual path, you got to have an open mind. You know, one thing I think about when I'm listening to you talk about the the system, if we if there's a system in the brain that we can point to where the ideas are, which is 
is not, there's not a system there, but there's a system of systems that are creating those experiences. It's, it feels intuitive to me to say that that grasping process that you're talking about may be fundamental to how each of the systems are working. Um, that there's not one grasping process, there's lots of little grasping, it's just the nature of the systems. And it's the nature of how the systems, in neuroscience speak, it's how they move up a level of the hierarchy and integrate, move up and integrate, move up and integrate. And so if that's true, um, then it seems pretty obvious that you might free the grasping process in one system, or you might free up the energy as Shenzhen and I like to talk about in the lab, in one system, which feels really good, and you can talk about that as, as part of your awakening process, uh, whereas where we're talking, there might be another piece of the system that you have no conscious access to, that you can't experience, that's still doing that grasping process. And if you free the energy in one part, it, it might be a zero-sum system, such that now another part of the system has more energy to grasp. And I'm just wondering if that, if, does that gel with sort of your intuitions about people's practice? Certainly gels with, with people's excitement about practice, right? So they, they get the hit of, you know, understanding, uh, altered state, whatever it is. And there's a definite tendency to grasp after that. One of the things teaching jhanas is I have to watch out for jhana junkies because they learn these really cool states and they just wanna hang out and play with the states. They've become attached to it. And the way out of it is to force them to do their insight practice post jhana. Okay, so now you've got the fourth jhana. What are you gonna do for your insight practice after the jhanas? I don't know. All right, so you need to figure out what your insight practice is gonna be. And when you go away, next time you come back for your interview, I want to hear more about your insight practice than your jhana experience. Keep playing with your jhanas, but work on your, okay. And so now I've got them doing their insight practice and the insights are so much more rewarding than just getting high that it cures the jhana junk, junkie thing. But as you say, they make it attached to whatever insights they've got. And this is the way the world is and everything else. I want to, build a website that's the enlightenment test. And it's, it contains 40 questions and it, they're all multiple choice, you know, uh, something like uh, Osama bin Laden spent the year 2002 primarily living in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Crawford, Texas, all of the above, none of the above, I don't know. And so every, every question would have all of the above, none of the above, I don't know. And half the questions, the correct answer is I don't know. You may have an idea where Osama bin Laden spent his year 2002, but you don't know, right? And so your ability to be comfortable with I don't know is extremely important on the spiritual path because there's this huge tendency to think, okay, I've got some information, now I know. In other words, locking into a view. And the more comfortable you can be with, I don't know, 
the better your progress is going to be on the spiritual path. You will know more, but you will also learn how much more you don't know. Uh, for everything you know, I can make up 10 questions that you don't know the answer to. Like, what's happening at noon on the equator in, on the nearest habitable planet to Betelgeuse? You don't even know what planet that is, right? You certainly don't know what's happening at the equator at noon right now. There's so much we don't know, and we tend to grasp onto what we do know and think that's that's it. And it's much more important to realize what you don't know and be comfortable with it, because then you can explore and learn some more. And that's what that's what building the raft is about. That's how you get across to the other side, where you're not doing the craving and clinging that leads to the dukkha. Mm. This is a fascinating idea that you just suggested. I, I just want to confirm that I heard it correctly. Uh, were you saying you were going to put up a bunch of questions and that I, I wasn't quite, you know, if it's what's the third planet from Betelgeuse? I mean, obviously, everyone's going to say, I don't know. But if it's something where they would have a proclivity to think they know, but they don't. If you've got those kinds of questions mixed in with no-brainer things that people can confidently know, you're saying you could use that as a metric for how attached people are to their ideas, or at least to how much of a tendency they are, they have to have an opinion when they probably shouldn't. Is that what you were suggesting? A kind of, uh, uh, actually a psychological, a psychometric test for uh, proclivities to hold opinions? I thought that's yeah. what I heard. Yeah. Lee, I think and, this is brilliant. And there would be 40 questions and 20 of them would have answers that were either correct or not. You know, uh, Columbus discovered America in 1491, 1492, 1493, 1494. All of the above, none of the above, I don't know. And you got to get that answer correct or you get points off. But 20 questions would have the, I don't know is the correct answer. And the, 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 the way you really score points is answering, I don't know, to those. And you lose points for answering, I don't know, to ones where yeah. you should have. So, Jay, do we have any tests like this or in prior art in psychometry? Or is this a new idea that you and I should pursue with Jay in the lab? Seriously. Uh, there's definitely tests like this for other things, but definitely not for enlightenment, spiritual experience or anything like that. I think well, it's brilliant. Well, he's not saying enlightenment. He, he called it an enlightenment test, but it's really a proclivity to, to have an opinion in an unjustified way. Mm -hmm. Do we have prior art in psych? Uh, because I think this is a very interesting idea. It sounds similar to some of the fluid intelligence tests, but this is a bit different because you're talking about, yeah, you're sort of flipping it on its head in a sense. Um, you're looking so, at the non-fluidity. Yeah, well, yeah, or well, the fluidity in a different sense because fluid intelligence is about sort of problem solving in a sense. And this is- Oh, I see. More like fluid intelligence for the ego, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I just, you know, maybe it's something we can talk about. And because it also goes to my interest in communication and why communication breaks down mm-hmm. in society, which, and intrapsychically, interpersonally, and then inter-community, international. Why does communication break down? This is part of it. So I just thought that was a very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting to me, at least, the way that this tendency to form conclusions or hold on to what we could say is a more solid seeming object of awareness could be functioning similarly neurologically. So one of the things Jay brought up in the email chain is that some theories of consciousness sort of posit that there's a hierarchy of kind of conclusions being made neurologically at many different nested levels of the nervous system. And one of the things that we're looking at in the sensory clarity project that I'm working on with you two is how it's possible that when we gain sensory clarity, we might tend to do less of that kind of conclusion making thing and be able to be more attuned to the sort of raw granular sensory data as it comes in. And I think or feel intuitively that there may be some kind of correlation in someone's ability to maintain uh, a sort of level of openness to the fine details of their sensory reality before forming them into objects, as well as their ability to form cognitive conclusions and that this all may be functioning in similar ways neurologically. Um, And I think this also relates to pleasure in the nervous system because much of what actually blocks pleasure in the spine and brain is actually inhibition of, of neurological activity as well as a sort of structure that kind of holds us in a, a non-pleasurable state. Like rather, we think that we have to evoke pleasure in the nervous system, but actually neurologically, what's mostly occurring is a lowering of the inhibition of pleasure itself as it functions in the spine and brain. And so when you look at Lee's brain scans on the jhanas, all that quietness would could correspond to both increased pleasure and a decrease in the tendency of forming assumptions. I know that seems like a stretch, but neurologically, I think there's no, some no, no, it, it all fits. There's a way to weave that all together in one paradigm. And what you've just said is really the scientific centerpiece of this conversation. This, that last thing you said where you, you brought in the a rather stunning remark about the nature of pleasure, which I'm very interested to hear Jay's opinion, because let me repeat back to you what I thought I heard you say, confirm that, see what Jay has to say about it. Um, That in fact, the uh, I'm assuming it's actually GABAergic interneurons that part of their job is not just to suppress pain, but to actually suppress pleasure. And if you de-suppress those suppressors, uh, they just 
you're not really activating pleasure. You're just opening the gate uh, in the dam because yes. it's already already there. Um, yes. That, of course, in my hearing, perfectly matches on to what Lee was saying at the very beginning, that the jhana factors, many of them, are already there or are very easily accessible. Now you're talking about a neuronal, a hard science, neuronal theory for why that would be the case. That's definitely something we want to go after. Yes. So um, to be more... uh, just one other thing, how it relates to not holding on to views. So, you know, every teacher has their favorite things that they talk about, their pet phrases. And one of mine is that mindfulness practice is cultivating a new relationship to sensory experience. And then we've, in a very, as you well know, uh, very fine-grained and thorough way, tried to chop up the pie of sensory experience. The experience of a, of a belief comes up, it's very fleeting, uh, doesn't last for long, but it comes up in the inner system as surface or subliminal mental image, surface or subliminal mental talk, and surface or subliminal emotional body experience. Uh, a sensation, limbic, somesthesia. So that's complicated because a lot of it might be below the surface, but it certainly, you can tell when image talk and body emotion space are shifting uh, around. So I would say that the basic mindfulness skills of concentration, clarity, and equanimity, um, when they're brought to, when you can zap in the instant with uh, a shaft of mindfulness, the arising of an opinion, the surface and deep aspects of that sensory phenomenon begin to break up and flow. And that's when the stickiness around beliefs goes away, but that's also when the depths become fluid enough to make intuitive connections. That's the prajna, the, the wisdom function. So it actually is all very closely related, I believe. That's beautiful, Shenzhen. I love that idea. And I think it is, uh, I mean, like Jay said, we don't have enough studies looking at ecstatic meditation and uh, many of these sort of nuances of contemplative practice to know the answer. But I think there's a substantial body of evidence pointing to the ideas that it's possible that sensory clarity, ability to experience bliss, and the ability to have these kind of intuitive, fluid types of intelligence could all be 
functioning very similarly neurologically and be facilitated by similar practices as a possible acquired skill. That's right. That's what we want to untangle. Um, now, Jay, what do you think about this notion that actual bliss or pleasure is there? And if you, uh, if you release the inhibitors, of course, you're going to get bliss out. Uh, yeah, this is a fascinating question. Do you guys uh, know about center surround neurons in the visual system? Um, so these are uh, ganglion cells in the retina and other places in the eye that um, the center, when it's stimulated, is on and it's transmitting, yes, there's an object. The surround transmits off. So if the center is on, the, the outside is inhibiting. If the, if the visual object falls in the center, if the visual object falls on the surround, it inhibits everything, so it turns it off. And the idea of the center surround is that you've got a mechanism where the eyeball can make a contrast because it needs to know where the edges of the visual field are. Uh, you know, the visual system is dealing with a very hard problem. What's out there? Where, where are the edges? Where are the objects? What does the edge belong to? And you can think about this process of contrast throughout the whole brain. The brain is constantly making these contrasts and trying to figure out is it good or bad? Is it pleasurable or not pleasurable? Is it happy or not? Uh, is it sex or pain? <laughs> you know, like all of these things it has to figure out contrast and send it up to the next level. And so the mechanism of inhibition is crucial for this contrast um, in, in the emotional system as well. And so it's an interesting question because one of the problems the brain is figuring out is, is it a, is this signal a pain signal? I mean, pain is just a signal coming through with a certain intensity level. And the signal is trying to tell you to do something like move your hand. So it's got to do that contrasting thing to even figure out what's the nature of the signal. How intense is the signal? Does that intensity need to reach a threshold to move your hand off of the stove? Now, the question is what happens when you remove that comparison process? <laughs> um, and I think that's what we're talking about is by by um, very focused attention practices and other types of practices, you are somehow ramping down the signal of the inhibition. You're telling the inhibition to cool it. And by cooling, something is emerging. <laughs> and, I, and why it's pleasurable still, I, I, can't, I can't quite get to that speculative part yet, but it seems that without having that contrast, the system is just in this, positively valenced state all along. Um, and I think that's one of the deep things that these uh, self-reports from contemplative practices is teaching us. Um, now we were talking on, on our, our fun email thread about uh, one of my favorite researchers, Jak Pinksep um, and Antonio Damasio, both of whom who have a theory that uh, awareness experience or consciousness um, is, is not, happening as the end product of all the neural processing. It's not happening in the neocortex at the end of all of this. It's actually germinating very deep in the brain as these sort of pre-self, pre-object, pre-differentiated forms of awareness. Um, it, to me, it sounds a lot like what 
contemplative people might call non-dual experience, although it might be a little different. But it's the idea. You that know it's, what? It's uh, just, it, the Christians had a phrase. They called it um, the busy quiet. The busy quiet. I like that. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, William James's bumbling, what, you know, whatever know, you call uh, the baby. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, blooming, buzzing, confusion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's not that. Uh, I uh, think it's okay. actually a lot of order. Um, mm. But uh, it's um, what people that work in unified mindfulness would call uh, subtle processing or subliminal processing. But uh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, so you know, the long story short is that there may be this uh, field of awareness is one way that the emotion researchers talk about it that is down at the base of the brain. It's in the brainstem. It's, it's the oldest part of the brain. They call it the reptilian brain because reptiles have it as well. And that this might be the germ of the experience that flowers out through the evolutionary layers of the cortex. And this germ of the experience gets added and refined. You get perception, self concepts, you know, goals, all this stuff gets added on. And eventually we get our normal experience of this unified perception that we're living inside of. But the, the thing that's happening down at the base is this just field of this awareness. And if you think about what I'm talking about, each one of these layers that you go through, there's all this lateral inhibition with this GABA and other types of neurotransmitters that's trying to get rid of all the unimportant processing, all the stuff that's not necessary to get you to that end state, which is this just holographic world that we get to live in. Um, but it's trying to give you the most stable idea of what is happening out there and, and what you need to know about it to motivate yourself to act in this world. And so if you start quieting all of that lateral inhibition, intuitively, it feels like maybe you're just getting more to that lower germ of the experience that then as it, as it filters through, maybe it feels a little bit more positive than negative because there's not a lot of this attachment process happening in the first place. Um, so for example, the right prefrontal cortex deals with threat. And we're in a very threatening world at the moment with like the news that's totally threatening us. But if you can cool that system down, then that piece of experience doesn't get attached. And so the, you know, when, once you get to have this ultimate experience of this end product, you just don't have threat attached to it. Um, and that by its nature would feel better, I think. So maybe we're just getting kind of down to the lower levels of the nest and down there, it's just this field of awareness that has, a, a, as its nature just feels more positive than negative. There, there is so much I want to say since I last spoke. <laughs> There's, oh wow. We still haven't talked about sex yet. I think we, I think uh, we have right. an aversion to it. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. This is the time. This is the time to, 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 to explain it actually. Oh, so, sorry, Lee. I did want to hear what you had to say though. <laughs> I, we've already talked for 90 minutes and oh. I want to hear about both. Okay. Look, I'll just give a little brief overview. Oh, right. you so, first, you first. All right, so uh, 
the, the Buddha's paradigm of how we handle our sensory processing is quite fascinating and totally congruent with what you're saying. Uh, a later sutta, I suspect, Majjhima number 18, uh, the Honeyball Sutta, explains in detail, all right, there is the coming together of the sense object, okay, the tanka back there, and the sense organ, the eye, and then sense consciousness, right? You weren't aware of the tanka most of the time, right? <laughs> but when I suddenly mentioned it, you're aware of it, just like you're not aware of the pressure on your left foot until I say that sentence and suddenly you're aware of it. That's consciousness. Then process in the old brain, according to what I've read from neuroscience, is Vedana. Within one-tenth of a second, you decide, is this positive? Is this negative? Is this neither positive or negative and thus can be ignored? So we're filtering. This is our first filter, right? And most stuff is neither positive or negative. And so we're filtering it out. Then what comes is sanya. And sanya is usually translated as perception, but I want to translate it as conceptualization. Right? So, I believe that's correct. Yeah, I hold this up. And what do you see? You, you see a bird, you see some flowers, right? Yeah, there's no bird or flowers here. It's just colored shapes. The bird and flowers are your conceptualizing of the colored shapes, right? And then you start thinking about it. Oh yeah, I should go buy some flowers today. Or yeah, I should restock my bird feeder. So you're now having the thoughts, you've spiraled off and then it can turn into papancha where the thoughts just get completely out of hand. And the next thing you know, you're screaming nonsense or refusing to take a life-saving uh, vaccine or, or whatever craziness you come up with. So I think the Buddha was actually saying something quite similar to what you're saying, Jay, that there's this basic processing, this basic filter of pleasant, unpleasant. And then the next thing is to make it into a concept so that we can manipulate it. And then the next level is Sankara, which actually means making together. And the things that are made together are the concepts. When I say a sentence, I am throwing a bunch of concepts at you in a form that I hope will generate an understanding in your head with, with these concepts. But so any thought is a collection of concepts that have been strung together. And so I think it's going the same way there. The other thing I wanted to say is, for me, my favorite insight practice actually comes from the Tibetan tradition. Uh, I studied Dzogchen practice with Sopni Rinpoche. And there you're basically trying to get your mind into non-conceptual awareness, non-dual practice. I mean, there's no me in that. It's just, it's just, yeah, sensory input is happening. That's all. And it turns out if you hang out there, bliss arises. So what you're doing in that state is you are basically inhibiting the processing of the sensory input. So this inhibiting seems to spill over into, you're also inhibiting the stopping of bliss. And so the bliss just naturally arises. One of the other things that naturally arises is what's called objectless compassion. Just this feeling of connection and wanting to help. Uh, so in doing a non-dual practice effectively, you are inhibiting the conceptualizing and you are also inhibiting the uh, 
suppression of compassion and bliss. And so they also naturally arise. That's my take on what's going on. And so this book that I've just written on dependent origination, the last chapter of it is don't be fooled by your conceptualizing because we get totally lost in our concepts and think, oh yeah, we've got it now. But actually what we want to do is step back far enough so we can experience the world non-conceptually because that's that's where we're actually going to have the chance to see what's going on in, as you say, the holographic universe. If, if, you, if you experience it holographically, you're not experiencing the individual concepts. Chelsea, back to you. That was beautiful. Thank you, Lee. Um, well, so basically, I was going to answer the question that I've been asked, and I think it relates to everything we've already said, which is why I think this is a good time to bring it up. So basically, the reason why I think pleasure is happening in the way it is in the first jhana for some of your students and what is going on is related to some very basic concepts in sex research. And I think um, just to be clear, the reason why it's interesting is not just because of sex, but because I think really, as um, my teacher, Michaela Boehm, always says, there's not necessarily a strict dividing line between sexual pleasure and any other kind of pleasure in the human nervous system. So one of the main reasons I like sex research is it's one of the main scientific areas where we study pleasure, but pleasure could be studied outside of sex as well. It just isn't as much. So in sex research, one of the fundamental ways that we now know that sexuality is operating is something called the dual control model, which was developed by people at the Kinsey Institute and my friend Dr. James Faust and others. And essentially what this posits is that there's not one system that governs pleasure, but rather two, kind of functioning like the brakes and gas pedal in a car. Inhibition actually blunts the action of excitation. And this happens both neurochemically, as in serotonin, opioids, and GABA are inhibiting the excitatory neurotransmitters that are a result of pleasure, and it happens neuroanatomically. And the neuroanatomy of the sexual inhibition system is in the prefrontal cortex and also descending down the spine. So for instance, for people who have premature ejaculation, one of the things they do is give them SSRIs to increase the serotonin in the system so that descending spinal inhibition will block premature ejaculation because the spinal reflex will not be triggered. But the reverse could also be said that if we lower the inhibition in the spine and in the prefrontal cortex, so getting out of those areas of the brain that are responsible for conceptual thinking, as you were just talking about, Lee, like the prefrontal cortex and the higher areas of the cortex are both the ones that are responsible for forming our conceptions. They're also the ones that tell us, oh, this isn't a good time to experience pleasure. It's inappropriate, right? So when people have prefrontal cortex damage, they often become super sexually inappropriate. Um, if you were able to, so you, when you look at people with hyposexual desire disorder, people who can't experience enough pleasure, what you see is an overactivation of the prefrontal cortex. They cannot essentially get out of their heads. Of course, we're always in our heads. There's always brain activity. So I don't really like that term. But that's the way people feel it to be. Um, so the reverse of that would be true. And when I was looking at your jhana scans, I was really struck by how what looks like a brain experiencing an orgasm also looks like a brain on jhanas, not because of just the activation, but because of the deactivation. And so theoretically, and this has sort of yet to be studied, if you, uh, it, it, this occurs in the brain as well. There's always a balance between 
uh, oscillatory activity occurring and the inhibition of oscillatory activity. That one of the properties of oscillatory activity is that it recruits more oscillatory activity. So the more synchrony is, the more synchrony will try to occur. And inhibition blocks that, so we just aren't in a seizure all the time. When you don't have enough inhibition, you just are, you're sick, you have epilepsy, right? So one of the processes that often happens when people start spiritual practices, as that inhibition starts to lower, what probably is occurring is that excitation is able to fluidly move up the spine. We're able to focus on those more subcortical and spinal areas and sensations, and oscillatory activity is able to move through the brain in different patterns than it's used to, producing more pleasure and more experiences of pleasure without as much excitation needed to trigger the flow of excitation throughout the nervous system. And one of the interesting things that I think kind of lends some, you know, it's interesting to think about at least and would be interesting to study is that one of the things that seems to go wrong in meditation for people, which is studied by Willoughby Britton at the Cheetah House, is when people start having non-epileptic seizures because of meditation. So it seems that there's some way in which we're reorganizing the brain's ability to experience oscillatory activity and decreasing inhibition, and that that process can go either well or poorly, depending on the teacher and the skill of the teacher. So for instance, when people experience Kriyas, it's likely that this is sort of unrestrained oscillatory activity occurring in patterns that don't happen in the general population because of inhibition. So I think when you reduce conceptualization, you increase pleasure is the sort of one tagline way of, of putting all that. Um, and that inherently in the same exact processes that you would need to get in touch with this type of consciousness that Jay is talking about that is in the brainstem would be so similar neurologically to what would happen where you'd be able to experience a subjective and objective flow of energy through the nervous system up the spine and through the brain. Wow. hope that was interesting to anyone but me. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> you know, there's actually um, a study that came out recently of I think 40 uh, people who were taught jhana practice over a long period of time. They did EEGs pre-post and throughout, and they found that um, some small percentage, I think it was eight people, but it, I would have to look up the paper, uh, actually showed epileptic spike activity in their EEG. They did not have this before they trained jhana, and they had it during jhana practice. Now, what was really it's interesting is that if you talk to these people, they weren't experiencing any of the aura of seizure. They weren't having an actual seizure experience. They were having a jhana experience. Um, but if you just looked at the EEG objectively, it looked like a seizure was occurring. So well, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. My question yeah. is, <clears throat> were they having kriyas when that happened or was their body still? And this was a, a subtle epilepsy. Uh, the body was still, I think, for most of them, and they actually didn't weren't experiencing much during those states, um, stable attention and things like that, but no kriyas. So something had shifted in their brains, and that shift, although objectively looks bad, uh, it actually was subjectively and functionally fine. Um, so was it actually positively pleasant or just okay? I uh, I don't remember. I, I remember they asked the people and it wasn't a, a problem for them. You see, one way to, you know, there's just so many directions uh, 
I, I'm hesitating to even bring up a new direction. So uh, maybe I'll be quiet. Because Kriyas, that opens up, a, if we could ever get the neurophysiology of that, and then how that relates to the process of the Kriyas going away. But in, in essence, everything sort of becoming a Kriya for you in that it now just happens. Like One enlightenment minute. is a functional fainting or enlightenment is a functional epileptic seizure that's actually more pleasant and more to the point than the normal form of functioning. One of the things in working with students, I get students who come in and there, when they meditate, they get Kriyas. And it sounds to me like what the Vasudhimaga calls momentary piti. In other words, I'm guessing that the Kriyas and the piti would look very similar neurologically. Only the Kriyas don't stay, they, they come and they go. Whereas the piti, you're sustaining it. It may not be as intense, though you can get PT that's pretty amazingly intense. And the Kriyas don't have the sukha with them that you have with the first jhana, because the first jhana is PT. So this physical thing that, yeah, may even look from the outside like a seizure. I mean, I'm vibrating when, when I'm in the first jhana. I mean, it's, it would be noticeable. But it's, a, it's attenuated by this pleasure, this joy, happiness of the sukha that's going with it. On the fourth retreat I taught was in Jerusalem. And one of the students was a former Israeli soldier who'd been shot in the head and I think it was the Six Day War, and he was subject to epileptic seizures. And he asked me, should I really try and practice the jhanas? And I said, uh, no, probably not. The first jhana might trigger a seizure in you. This was just, I mean, this is my fourth retreat. I don't have a lot of experience. I certainly don't know much about epilepsy, but just from what I knew, it was like, no, this is not a good idea for this guy because of the similarities there of the feeling of the first jhana and the, the vibratory seizure-like quality when it's really intense. So uh, there's a little two cents thrown in from my experience with this. Well, I think the, the Kriya, the actual physical manifestation is probably being mediated by oscillatory activity in the cerebellum and other motor areas of the brain. And I think what most likely is happening, and again, we need tons more studies on this to figure out what's occurring. But if you think about decreasing inhibition and allowing the brain to form what you could sort of very you know, unscientifically call a more fluid or less viscous or more conductive relationship to electrical activity, what you would then need to do in order to not actually develop epilepsy is you'd need to retrain that inhibition in some other manner. So when you have different teachers who are teaching about this sort of flow of energy, which is called pity and called kriyas and called all sorts of other things in almost every tradition it exists, you have teachers that sort of seem to glorify the Kriyas and look at them as a sign of accomplishment. And you have other teachers who teach you to basically run the energy smoothly through the nervous system or through the channels, right? Now that probably has a neurological correlate where you're learning to be conductive neurologically, but 
creating enough inhibition that the electrical activity is sustainable for the brain. So it would be about recreating what people call energy flow, but there's likely an electrophysiological component to that, which I hope in 200 years, Jay and Shenzhen and their uh, their future lab assistants and everyone that comes after that will have figured out exactly what's occurring there. But I think that's a likely hypothesis is some sort of reordering of the top-down processes in the brain and thus the body. Yeah, I think that's very insightful too, because, you know, one question is, can you just, in our lab, we're making a piece of technology that stimulates the brain and, you know, people wonder, is there just an enlightenment button? And I think there are principles that we're talking about here, that if you destabilize the system by reducing inhibition, increasing the likelihood of seizure, how do you restabilize that system? We're talking about 100 billion neurons or 80 billion neurons and trillions of support cells that are supporting those neurons. Uh, you need practice. The practice is actually reforming, reshaping those systems in a stable way. And I think um, in biology, we have this concept called homeostasis, where biological systems try to reach an equilibrium. They're reaching an equilibrium within a chaotic, nonlinear, dynamical system, highly chaotic, nonlinear, dynamic. I mean, the brain is so impossible, we may never truly understand it, actually, how dynamic it is. So, But somehow it's reaching these equilibrium states within that chaos. And so what we're now talking about is massively reorganizing. Uh, really quickly, actually, with a jhana practice, I think, or with you know brain stimulation or even psychedelics, the question is how long does it take to restabilize? And I think that there will be some principles that we find that say, given jhana one, two, three, here's how long it takes for the normal brain or for your brain, for example, to restabilize and be functional in the world. Um, and you could kind of have a map that sort of maps out all of that kind of stuff. So I see, you know, the the, the students and children of the lab here, that's one of their jobs is to go out and kind of make those maps and use the science to kind of update and try to understand from a sort of neurobiological perspective, you know, what, how long does this stuff take? Or, or maybe it doesn't, maybe the answer is it actually doesn't take that long and somehow the brain has a principle where it can reorganize. But the feeling is that, you know, neurons that wire together, fire together, wire together, that takes time. And that's just a basic learning principle. And it, it's just going to take months to years for that system to reorganize. One thing that's interesting is, so the idea is do the jhanas and come out and do your insight practice. But the, the ability to do anything post jhana varies enormously from student to student. Some students come out and yeah, they're just fine. They can just start their insight practice right away. And others come out and they're like, uh, 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 it's just not functioning there. Uh, of course, over time, you begin to get where you can come out and be back to fully functioning quicker. Uh, you, you know where to go to, to find reality again or something like that. But it is interesting that there's quite a, a variation there, which surprised me because when I would come out, yeah, I was back to normal functioning pretty quickly, although the colors were so much more vivid. I mean, it was like I was on a, a trip of something, uh, but I was functioning just fine. But that may be the fact that I did a lot of um, experimentation in my hippie days, so that I was used to functioning in altered states. Yeah, so you had modulated your 5-HTP receptors or serotonin receptors, and there you go. So that your baseline state was 
primed in a bit. You know, we might have a a blood test we can give people before retreats, and <laughs> then we can give you a recommendation on what you should do after the jhanas. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a sort of scientific way of the sort of classifications of different categories of practitioners that one sees in these uh, religious scriptures. If you're somebody of medium capacity, do this, great capacity, or we can say, if you have a 7.6, <laughs> you we can categorize that way. That's wonderful. Wow, what a tremendous conversation. Thank you all. Uh, once again, incredible. Lee, we called you special guest, but I think we have to say very special guest esteemed special guest your contributions here in this in this uh, uh series have been just so extraordinary and uh, exceptional thank you so much for for joining us oh this has been fantastic i have completely enjoyed this uh yeah i pay money to have conversations like this to, to be able to sit in my own place and have it do it for fun this is fantastic and it's a wonderful learning experience there was stuff we said last time that actually made it into the manuscript for the book on dependent origination so yeah I'm, i'll see if anything creeps in from this time as well but this has been just fantastic i really appreciate the invitation oh yes um, and i uh, can't wait to read that do you have any idea of when the publication date will be for your book on dependent <laughs> origination Oh God, it's, it's got, it's at Shambhala. It's in their queue to decide if they want to publish it. Um, if they want to publish it, it'll probably be spring of 23 at the earliest. Um, so what you're saying is if we want to read it, we have to write to Shambhala and uh, express our interest in reading it. Is that what you're saying? If everybody who's watching this video wants to read it soon, you should write to Shambhala and express an interest in reading it quickly. I am going to propose to Shambhala that we do a preprint digital only version and release that immediately while we're waiting for all the rest of the stuff to come. But publishers are very uh, conservative in the way they operate. So, uh, but, but if hundreds of people were writing in saying, I want a preprint version of Lee Brasington's book on dependent origination, well, it might work. So have at it. <laughs> Let's see if we can release the uh, inhibition uh, systems of the publishing world's uh, neurological blah, blah, blah. Okay, anyway, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti and very special guest, Lee Brasington. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.